Hey, everybody, we are here. It is Ergo. I am Damon. I'm Kiss. And as always, we are here having conversations with phenomenal people who are reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Uh, and very, very excited about this one. As folks know, if you're listening to this within any relative span of time of when it comes out, uh, we are still in quarantine and managing this global crisis. Uh, but we are very, very fortunate and excited here to have the phenomenal writer, activist, educator, and professor, Kianga Yamada Taylor. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be in conversation with us real quick. Um, everything is out of whack right now, but we have one tradition that we are trying to uphold in this time, and that's starting our conversation with a two-part question. And that question is, in this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Huh. Um, well, first, thanks. Thanks for the invitation um, to talk. I always love to connect with Chicago and, and people who are doing good work um, in Chicago. So I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity to talk with y'all today. Um, given the kind of um, grim numbers, I think this morning, uh, the U.S. surpassed uh, 50,000 deaths related to uh, COVID-19. Um, and of course, hundreds of thousands of people are um, uh, ill. Um, we're coming upon May 1st, uh, which means rent will be due again. Um, mortgages will be due. Bills will come due. And so within that context, myself and my family are are doing well. You know, we're I'm living in Philadelphia. We have some space. Um, we have the ability to uh, work from home and everyone's healthy. So, you know, in that context, I don't I don't really have anything uh, to complain about. How am I treating the world? You know, I think that one of the questions that people had, uh, people who care about the world had uh, as this was unfolding, was what will we be able to do? How can we uh, resist what we know is coming? I mean, there's there's the disease itself. And then there's, as Jesse Jackson wrote uh, in an op-ed uh, last week, the disease of white supremacy and the disease of inequity that we knew would be exacerbated by this crisis. And so the question was, what can we do? Uh, when there's nothing that can be done. And so, you know, I think that many people are trying to figure that out. There's been a lot of heroic organizing uh, around the issue of rent and housing. In Chicago, there's been the organizing to get people out of Cook County. There's been the organizing amongst nurses to stop the atrocious decision to close Providence uh, emergency room, public hospital on the south side of Chicago. Um, yeah, and, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. listeners, if you're interested in both of those issues, uh, so Dennis Kosuth, who's one of the nurses who led that action, was on the show a week and a half ago. You can find that episode as well as a bunch of the folks working around Cook County Jail. So right. listeners, if you, that's a, a little little pin in it for you. Right. 
So there's, you know, so people have been trying to plug in and, and figure out what to do. And so um, for me, that means uh, trying to lift up some of that activism uh, when I'm able to. I found out about the, the uh, organizing and issues at Provident uh, from an article that Dennis Cusseth wrote um, I think for Rampant Magazine, an online publication. And so I, um, you know, I try to, to write about some of these things and uh, to give some context, uh, insight, analysis that I hope can be useful in organizing efforts. Mm. So to that point, um, and I think this extends beyond this current crisis you know, one of the things that we're always really interested in is not it is less the what people do and more the how and why. Um, so I'm curious how you and it might just be a kind of a restating what you just said, but how do you see your role or, or your contribution in relationship to social movement in your work? You know, it's different. Uh, I lived in Chicago for um, many years for, I think, longer than I've lived anywhere else. And for most of the time that I was there, activism and organizing look like um, nightly meetings, uh, you know, for two or three hours. It looked like a lot of phone calls. Um, it looked like a lot of, you know, organizing meetings, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, I got, uh, I got a job finally, like a, a, a different kind of job. And, you know, I moved into a new, uh, a new city, a new situation where I didn't really know uh, the organizations and uh, the work really that people were involved in. And then, you know, I teach at Princeton, but I live in Philly and there's a 50 mile difference. And then there's a 50 mile distance. And then there's a world of distance, um, you know, between the two. And so it's meant that, um, over the last few years, I've been here since uh, 2014, that my, you know, writing has become much more as the central way that I um, intervene around politics. And so some of this started with the book From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, um, which I was writing within the year after I, I moved, but uh a book that really developed out of my movement organizing in Chicago. And a lot of uh, important parts of that book, especially uh, where I'm talking specifically about what then was a very nascent movement, came out of very long discussions that I was having with Jason Perez, who was uh, in Black Youth Project, which was a holdover from the very long discussions we would have in Chicago. Um, we were talking um, when I was in Philly and, you know, I was talking to, to, to lots of people who were on the ground in, in Chicago. And so those kinds of intimate political relationships were um, at the heart of, of that. I think they kind of animated the spirit of how we get free. Um, as my writing commitments have gotten more intense and taken up a lot more of my time, those experiences um, in 
sort of on the ground political organizing uh, and activism continue to inform the urgency, the kind of bluntness of my writing. You know, I never want to be in a situation where um, people that, you know, I once organized on a daily basis on the ground with don't recognize or understand what I'm I'm writing about, that it, it becomes disconnected and, and just writing for the sake of itself. It's changed a lot because my life uh, changed, you know, but my commitments are still the same. That life change is actually something I, I, I've been really interested in. And so I would like to hear a little bit more uh, about that personal journey uh, and like the struggles that have must come with such a change. And like, I think just like the scale of amplification that your voice has grown to in this time and how has that personal journey um, shaped your relationship to like audience? Uh, and, you know, I think that can get us to talking about like, you know, how you've been responding immediately to the, to the, to the crisis. But I want to go back a little bit, you know, personally, my entry point into movement was the Ferguson uprising and formed an organization out of that. And um, it was very Mm -hmm. much um, kindred with the the relationship with the organization lost voices. And one of the, one of the twins Mm -hmm. uh, is who's on the cover of, of the book. Mm -hmm. So from seeing it, it was like, you know, one, it was magical of like, this shit just started. How is there, how is there a book already? Mm -hmm. Um, And so from that, you know, then became, you know, learned who you were, been able to meet you. Um, but what I heard in that story is that there was like a preparation uh, that prepared you for when explosion happened, right? Like that was work that you were already building and then you had to reshape as the world changed. Um, and then from that, you went from being an activist academic um, to now like a, a public figure and a uh, an established voice that's traveling the country, helping to contextualize a movement that is emerging. Uh, and so in that, right, I think your audience changes from... I'm talking to and recording and codifying and documenting what's happening on the ground to like further the work and the project of liberation to now I'm talking to an audience that may not be sympathetic immediately or may not even be cognizant, may, you know, may just be ignorant to, to just like the lexicon of liberation. Um, and so now I'm having to like talk out the ABCs while also trying to do this deep study. I'm curious to hear a little bit like these last five years, just being a movement worker to, you know, the professor act, you know, activists mm-hmm. to now being a spokesperson. Um, what is the pressures that you feel in having to do that work? Cause I don't think that's what you knew you were signing up for per mm-hmm. se. Uh, <laughs> and then how does that change this external relationship to audience that obviously drives your craft of, as a writer? Um, those are, those are great questions. Um, the interesting thing about the black lives matter book, which I started writing in January of 2015. Um, you know, I, I had been involved in, in, in Chicago, I would say in the kind of preparatory ground that was being laid before uh, Ferguson um, boiled over. So what that looked like in Chicago was... I remember in the summer of, of 2012 at the socialism conference, I spoke at a, on a panel with maybe 10 families uh, who had lost loved ones, whose family members had been killed by the police. At that moment in the organizing of that panel, it was clear that the organizing around uh, issues of police abuse and violence um, 
were uh, certainly gaining ground and becoming a focal point. One of the people on that uh, panel was um, Erica Gordon, uh, who recently passed away, uh, who's a cousin of Emmett Till and who'd been very involved in fighting around police brutality and racism and um, in the city. And so the reason why I could write that book so quickly is because many of the the issues um, that were germane and central to that organizing from Ferguson to to Black Lives Matter really began to come together uh, in 2012. And so from what I had been involved in 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 the, the summer to the murder of Trayvon Martin, but importantly in Chicago, was the murder of Rakia Boyd several weeks later. And so, you know, I helped to organize a public forum with Jesse Jackson. It was uh, downtown, but uh, Martinez uh, Sutton, Rakia Boyd's uh, brother came. And this was like maybe a few days uh, after Simeon, uh, who was in the room with Emmett Till when uh, he was uh, pulled out, spoke um, on that panel. Many of the, the issues that would explode in Ferguson and would become the fodder for a broader Black Lives Matter um, movement, you could see that why this was uh, became a national movement so quickly, because each locality, each city uh, could have its own very specific history and campaigns uh, unto itself. So you didn't need to just fight for somebody else somewhere in some other city. You could connect that case to uh, a lineage of police abuse and racism um, in the in the the city of Chicago. And I was very involved in that uh, local organizing during that time. So when Ferguson uh, boiled over, and then the lack of indictments in December uh, of that year concerning Eric Garner and Michael Brown Jr. exploded into a national phenomenon. It was very easy to uh, to begin to to write about that in a general way. And so I think, you know, that book um, sort of opened up uh, things for me. I think that the original print um, run, I think, was supposed to be 2,000 copies or something like that. It sold probably close to 40,000 copies. So that obviously opened a lot of space for me to, um, to both write and to, uh, to talk about things. You know, I think that I come off as, as different politically uh, than um, what people expect. And so I think there's curiosity. That what do you think people expect? I'm not exactly sure. I think people are not used to, in, in movement circles, it's different, but I think for the a broader public, they're um, not used to people maybe three or four years ago, being kind of either socialist or having very clear um, class politics on the one hand, um, but also not class reductionist. And so I think 
in the in the mainstream media, they have almost created a caricature that you can either be a socialist or you can, you know, have these intense race politics. Right. Um, uh, but you can't combine both of those. So, you know, which means that they're actually ignorant about uh, a lot of the history of the black left. Damon, you have this poster of Ella Baker behind you. Ella Very Bla- intentionally for Yes, no, too. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Oh, 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 this thing? Yeah, oh, I, I know. Even Just sitting around. Events. I know. <laughs> yeah, so Ella Baker was a black socialist who right. um, believed that black liberation was tied up uh, with human liberation. That, in fact, you, you can't really have one um, without the other. And so I think this, this strikes people as a curiosity because the public discussion is that it's either race or class, you know, and you can't, you can't actually think in a dynamic way that uh, combines the two. And so um, I think because I've been making those particular arguments, you know, along with other people, but for a long time that I make them persuasively. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I think that that becomes a point of, of curiosity. And so in the, I think in the broader context where socialist ideas are no longer completely marginalized, I mean, that is evidenced by the political success of um, Bernie Sanders, that there, there's a small space that exists to see what do socialists think about this thing that um, the mainstream makes a tiny space for um, as, as a way to engage with this curiosity that can't be ignored, you know, because it's garnering millions of votes, but it's still, I think, misunderstood. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, that explains some of the reception to, you know, at least some of my work in mainstream um, spaces. It's a, I think the other thing, and this is maybe more uh, more on the nose, you're just a damn good writer, right? And it goes to some of what you were saying before well, thank about you. the directness. Hey, I was going to blow right past the compliment, <laughs> but I'm glad we took a second. Uh, but, you know, what you were saying before about the, the directness and the clarity being really at the center of it and making sure that, you know, if, if what you're doing is connecting dots so that people can see what's happening, I, I think the, you know, in this moment, looking at the article that was in The New Yorker is kind of a, a perfect microcosm of that. And, you know, as someone who's been really engaged on the very local level here, I recognized a lot of the stories and the quotes and stuff about what was happening in Chicago. Um, but then the ability to put that in conversation with both kind of the macro political conversations, but then also the the hyper specific in different places, just as a movement worker, that was very useful. And I think as a reader who's not doing any of this work, it creates this picture that's, yeah, it clearly helps an understanding of like, what does this moment look like for a wider swath of people than people are usually getting access to? So um, I'll just say that yeah. before I was was doing anything else. I, I was an organizer. Um, and I was, I was a good organizer. And I think that effective organizing means that you have to accept people where they're at and figure out how to move with them to go somewhere else, you know, mm-hmm. and that requires a lot of talking and 
listening, probably most importantly, and really learning how to put things together, you know, mm-hmm. in, in ways that are um, persuasive. And so if anything, my writing and I do a lot of uh, public speaking, um, which I was doing a lot of before the academic stuff and uh, really before I kind of honed in um, on, on writing, which I had a lot of difficulty putting my ideas together until uh, something happened with Hurricane Katrina where it all mm. finally came together. Um, Do you remember the moment or uh, was there a click or did it just emerge? Uh, you know, everyone always says, oh, why are you surprised? Why are you shocked? You know, which I always just find like, I never want to become so cynical, even about things that deserve the utmost cynicism, (laughs) that you just lose touch with the shock at the inhumanity of the people who run this country. I don't ever want to lose touch with that. So yes, I, I was actually shocked at the almost organized neglect of black people in new Orleans. And it was so overwhelming to me that my kind of inbuilt like obstacles or whatever they were that had prevented me from thinking clearly and writing clearly just disappeared and went away. Um, I think I called Katrina our Birmingham and I wrote it and it was published on the Counterpunch website. That was a a big kind of mental breakthrough. Those things I think are what lead to the kind of simple yet precise way that I like to write. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to, to be any particular thing. I'd like to write simply and clearly and um, connect things. And that, that really comes from organizing. Yeah. In hearing that kind of trajectory, it places me back in the moment we're in right now um, of there's always this interplay between crisis and movement and resistance. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm getting older, but still feel young at 27. We're like, I was uh, like in sixth grade when Katrina happened. Uh, um, and so like, I, I, I can lose sight of that as a continuum mm. in this, in a way that is not, is not possible for me for Trayvon to Mike Brown mm. to now. Right. So that's, I appreciate you expanding that perspective of. Well, you um, should, Jamel Bowie, who's a columnist at the New York times wrote this mm-hmm. really illuminating editorial about how, Katrina was the beginning of Black Lives Matter, mm. you know, and I like to think in those those terms as well um, and how these things connect to each other. There's continuity. There's also things that uh, are different, um, but we all know that none of this is new. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Let me not go into that rabbit hole. Let me. <laughs> um, so, so, <laughs> so you know th- this continuum of crisis. In, in addition to the piece to the, in the New Yorker, I saw another piece of you know it is obvious that new movements, new tactics, uh, new forms of, of protest and resistance are emerging. And so, I just want to kind of like mm-hmm. pull out that claim because as I as we go back to Katrina, uh, which was obviously national but still very mm-hmm. hyper local, as we go to you know the 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 wave of 
heightened attention to police violence. Obviously, it was not new, uh, but but you know, Rakia and and vigilante Trayvon and and Mike Brown, right? You can isolate those to a a person, a place, a neighborhood, an instance, a conflict. Uh, But this crisis that we're in right now is the most Mm -hmm. um, expansive and immersive and like all encompassing that anybody alive has has experienced. Uh, And so it's universal, but it's also particular as we know in, in how it is compounding all of the, the injury, disadvantage, trauma, you know, toxic environment that black people have been subjected to have prevailed and survived through. Uh, And so how does that complicate this, this trajectory of like, Oh, there's a tragedy that happens to black people and we respond and it it builds us, but it also gets marginalized or looked at like as a isolated incident. Um, Now everybody is impacted. We are the most impacted. Mm -hmm. Um, There are obviously strengths and limitations to that. Just, just talk through more um, the uniqueness of this crisis in that continuum. I mean, I think that's why we can never, uh, loosen the grip on um, highlighting how uh, racial inequities create harsher outcomes for for African Americans. So when this was first unfolding, you know, the, there was the the thing of well, the coronavirus is going to be the great equalizer, you know, <laughs> and that just it's important to always resist that kind of universalism on the right, you know, or, or it wasn't necessarily a right wing argument, but it no, ultimately, it you know, right. It ultimately leads to that uh, direction. Um, and, you know, that's about understanding the role of racism and white supremacy in uh, U.S. Um, society And you can see some of the implications of this. I mean, I said kind of glibly on Twitter, which is all you really can do on Twitter. um, But that once it it became, yeah, no, I know. (laughs) Once it became known that black people, you know, poor and working class black people were disproportionately dying as a result of this disease, we would see the rapidity uh, of uh, the political establishment to get people back to work, <laughs> you know? And so that, that's not wholly true, but I think that the kind of resistance and, and horror that people are getting $600 extra a week on unemployment in addition to state benefits, the idea that people could decide not to go back and work for uh, poverty wages you know, has opened up this this horrible uh, discussion about getting people back to work and and trying to return to normal. Uh, one, it ignores that normal, quote unquote, is part of how we got into this uh, situation. But it also underestimates the absolute gravity of the the crisis that we are um, in right now. And so, in the efforts to try to come up with solutions that if we don't highlight the ways that uh, African-Americans always suffer disproportionately more, are overrepresented in the ranks of uh, the the most harmed, then we can be sure that whatever solutions uh, are come up with uh, will not go far enough. They won't reach uh, uh, deep enough amongst the people who are suffering the most. And we have to particularly pay attention to the way that all of this is not just material. 
it's not just about being a frontline worker. It's not just about an inability to pay rent. It's not just about poverty. It is also about racism. So when we look at, you know, the black bus driver in Detroit who took to Facebook to talk about uh, really being afraid um, and angry about the conditions under which he and other bus drivers were working with the lack of, of protection, the lack of, of true concern about their health and safety. The other part of the story is that he was turned away from three separate hospitals, even as he was exhibiting uh, the symptoms of COVID. His last trip to the hospital, he was so out of breath that his fingers were blue and they still sent him home. And so after three failed attempts at getting medical care, he was sent home and he died at home. And so all of the stories about medical neglect or undertreatment are also coming to the fore. And that's not just about poverty. That is about racism. If we are only talking about coming up with solutions that are dealing with the material effects of what this crisis has exposed, we will not have really dealt with the deeper issues of what this disease has exposed, which is not just the depravity of what it means to have a society built around a profit motive while ignoring human need, but what happens when that profit motive is then underscored by white supremacy and a palpable hatred for Black people, for Native people, uh, for uh, Latinx people, um, for Asian people, and all the, this anti-Chinese racism that is circulating freely from the highest echelons of our society, that we have to, we have to take that on as a central part of the struggle as well. And we miss that if we only talk about, you know, how we're, we're kind of all in this uh, together. I, I really appreciate, you know, the naming of how a, a reductive material approach will underplay the, like the social, political uh, and human foundations of this crisis, namely how racism shapes all of those dynamics. Um, and I know we are, are running low on your time. So I just had like one more thread that I, that I wanted to, to touch before we let you go. Um, if we're talking about racism, it is systemic and there you know, you know, are many systems that perpetuate or, or organize uh, white supremacy in, in our world. And so I think right now, a la your piece, like the Medicare for all conversation is becoming more and more obvious uh, and more and more like ridiculous to even try to get into the argument. Right. Like it's pretty much this is what it is. Um, and, and I'm feeling within movement, but also within popular consciousness, um, a direction towards, I think, what might even be a more substantial conversation. And it's so big that we kind of take it as a given. Uh, and that is our housing system. And, and so I, I want to <laughs> make sure also that we don't um, do what I think a lot of hip hop media does is like, only talk about your first mixtape, right? <laughs> so I don't want to just like you know, Nas, Nas Illmatic yeah, yeah, yeah. you. <laughs> um, no, look, Illmatic's great. The Illmatic's book's great. great. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but, there, but hits have continued to come. Uh, and so Race for Profit uh, is a really important text that that I want to make sure, uh, one, we note that that exists and, and is highly significant, uh, but it's 
personally very pertinent for me because in my observation, but I think in movement organizations across um, the, the conversation of housing when we're talking about racial capitalism is becoming more and more tangible because you simply can't organize people without addressing living, right, and shelter. Mm-hmm. So just a little personal arc, right? Like like I said, my origin was in Ferguson and trying to support, amplify, and help transfer the protest and resistance movement. Uh, but the people we were building with were un, you know struggling with homelessness and, and being mm-hmm. unsheltered. Uh, I come to sh- we're working in Chicago, uplifting Rakia, police torture, you know, uh, uh, home and square, false confessions, mm-hmm. and we're trying to just sit outside and protest. And we can't do it ethically without addressing the fact that there are so many homeless people uh, in North Lawndale. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're building mm-hmm. a space on the south side, trying to do artistic classes and programming, and it's only folks from a homeless shelter, and the shelter closed down in the middle of our program, right? And so it became a place of irresponsibility to be saying no one should be in jail we should not have a militarized policing um, without saying everyone should have a home uh, which is beyond affordable housing which is beyond a voucher which is beyond you know a government controlled project building where folks can be you know thrown out at the discretion of the state at any point um, in the same way that you know we, we need socialist medicine <laughs> or that a medical system based on capital and profit is inhumane and violent and dangerous. Um, so is a, a housing and shelter system that is driven by market dynamics and profit. Um, and your book and your research does a great job of showing the housing crisis that black people have been experiencing for 100 years is not incidental. Uh, but also it pokes at the mythology that I think we've internalized. Um, I think it's hard to find folks who have not idealized home ownership, right? Uh, as this, this last place of like, if I'm a the meritocracy is real, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, if I just do the right thing and invest in this vehicle, this is the appropriate way towards social mobility and sustaining my family. Um, and just all the evidence when we look at it critically shows that that is not true. And leaving the market to to control people's shelter is really, really dangerous. Um, I would just say that the, the deification of homeownership is the kind of ideological covering But the deeper problem is that we have a society where your personal ability to accumulate wealth is what determines your quality of life. Um, And so even if you, you know, don't particularly want to be a homeowner, there's a logic that pushes you into that because that is the central way that most Americans then are able to accumulate this wealth. And so your house becomes seen as the way that you finance your kids' uh, college, the way that you have the capacity to weather an unforeseen uh, financial crisis, that which guarantees you uh, a comfortable retirement or any retirement um, at all. We have bound all of this up in the home while eviscerating the social or public provision that might come through a welfare state. Um, And so that is what I think has driven the hysteria uh, of white people around the presence of black people in their neighborhoods in this country for more than a hundred years because property values do matter. They absolutely do matter in a country that offers you absolutely nothing. And so when that state then tells you, you know, not just popular mythology, but actually creates the conditions by which the presence of black people will devalue your property because the state has said that we will not guarantee mortgages if there is a single black person in your neighborhood. 
then that has an impact and it has had a reverberating impact since that those decisions were made in the 1930s. And so if we want to see a recalibration of the idea that home ownership really uh, is the goal of citizenship, then we have to disconnect the quality of life from owning a home. We have to disconnect the ability to have a decent retirement from owning a home. We have to disconnect access to healthcare, access you know, to uh, a college education, all of these things from the ownership uh, model. Because if all of those things were available in an unencumbered way for people, uh, then you wouldn't see this worship uh, of property ownership. And so that's one part of it. The other part is we're seeing how the lack of housing security uh, intersects quite neatly with the lack of health security, the lack of wellness. If you're paying between 30 and 50% of your income for rent, then it means that you have no savings, that you can't save anything when something unexpected, let alone a, a crisis of this proportion, uh, happens. It also means that a lot of the unsafe and unsecure and unsound housing that poor and working class people are forced to live in becomes part of the healthcare crisis. In Philly, there are literally hundreds of apartments that have been legally designated by the city of Philadelphia as unfit for human habitation. That is the legal category that they are placed in. And yet thousands of people live in those dwellings because the city and the state have no plan to deal with the homelessness, the, the crisis of homelessness that would be unleashed if they actually condemned these properties. But one of the reasons why these properties have been designated uh, as such is because some of them have no plumbing, some of them have no running water, some of them have no hot water. And so imagine that and that makes you sick to the idea of like we are predisposed to the to absolutely and and now imagine it in the context where you're being told to wash your hands you know right, every right. time you leave the house every time you come into the house they're they're stressing as a federal mandate hygiene but they're not giving people the means to actually be medically hygienic you know there's no right. mandate that you can't turn people's water off there's a suggestion that maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you want to rethink these things. But like I said in the article, when is it ever a good idea to turn somebody's fucking water off? When, when is that, you know, not a policy decision that will do nothing but promote disease and death? You know, and, but this is all logic that is driven by the market. Those dwellings continue to be habitated and to exist because there's a market for them. And so we have to disconnect the market from these things that the human race can actually not survive without. We cannot survive without food. We cannot survive without water. We cannot survive without some type of medical intervention and we cannot survive without housing. And that these things are bound to the market is the problem in and of itself. And so that is the bigger discussion that we need to have. So in my book, I talk about inclusion into this is not the solution. Exclusion obviously is not the solution, but simply saying that, well, if we just include black people into the market, 
then that in and of itself will solve the problem. But the market itself is the problem. And that is the, the conversation that we need to have. Well, that that's pretty conclusive. <laughs> you, you know how to wrap something up. Um, <laughs> as we go, I just, you know, one of our, our traditions here is offering gas. And I want to make sure that, you know, uh, or affirmation is another way to put it. Uh, I want to make sure that, you know, that you were able to speak, but I, I really want to say thank you, not only for making time to have this conversation with us, but uh, for the work that you do, that you've dedicated your life to. Um, in the last, you know, six to nine months or maybe year, I've been explicitly naming Black liberation as my, like, spiritual tradition or, or mm-hmm. even my religion, uh, uh, so to speak. So it, it is becoming much more sacred to me. Um, and so, you know, you have helped codify or create sacred texts that, you know, will live beyond us. Um, and you're like an apostle or a priestess for me alongside, uh, you know, Barbara and Barbara Ransby. And I just want to be a comrade. That's all. Uh, also, also, that's all. also, you know, we but all can you. co-facilitate. But, that, that's what all good religious figures say. <laughs> but I just want to say, you know, and, and not to deify or not to yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, put no. you on a pedestal, but to, to give you what you deserve. Uh, thank you so much for your work and being a voice and, and intervening and interrupting spaces that otherwise might just continue moving on in really really harmful ways um and so i I am very very grateful and and humbled and and um proud to be in your community and in your lineage thank you so much last question it's a two-parter because we you know we're a long-winded crew um one how can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found and is there anything that you would want folks in this moment to be doing um and two What's something you've been doing, if not every day, close to every day, that's helping you be more okay in this moment of instability? Um, I think almost all, although I need to do some updates. Uh, I have a, a website, kiangataylor.com, I think, uh, <laughs> which was necessary when I was traveling repeatedly. I, I gave like 25 talks in the fall. I had 15 or 20 more lined up for the uh, the spring. So that was mostly so that people could see where, mm-hmm. where um, I was going. There's kind of a, a list of, um, I think at least 20 um, articles uh, that I've written. And there's, there's probably in the, the last year and a half, and there's probably another uh, four or five that uh, need to, to be uploaded. So that's, you know, that's one thing that I'm doing. I think what can, what can people do? There's a lot of uh, Zoom platforms, and hopefully one of the things that will come out of this is that we find some other means to communicate with each other um, that are not just, you know, enriching these people who um, do not have our best interest at, at heart. So whether that's Zoom, Facebook, um, Twitter, all, all of these social media uh, platforms. But in the meantime... Um, there's a lot of really good organizing um, around housing in particular. One of the good things that has happened is that it's allowed for a lot more cross-state and cross-city discussions, but also international um, discussions because people can can facilitate that now. And so I think particularly around uh, tenant organizing, uh, we have a lot to learn from different struggles and movements around the world. And so now there seem to be more opportunities to do that type of collaboration. And, you know, I've seen some, uh, particularly with in workplaces, whether it's Amazon, the nurses at, at Provident and, and around the country, uh, socially distant protesting. And so we need to think more about that, 
imagine what that that might look like as one form of protest in in this moment. But as I said in the the article uh, you referenced earlier, Damon, all challenges that activists face produce new modes of thinking and new modes of of acting. And so this is one of them. And out of this, we will think of uh, new ways to resist the, the, the dominant order. And uh, we're not going to be in this situation forever. Sadly, we're in it for now, but it's finite. And at some point, we will be able to, uh, to reemerge um, as a physical collective. But in the meantime, you know, I think it's important for uh, people to uh, be socially distant, but not isolated. And so that means that we need to check in and talk with each other and, and you know, learn about some of the things that, that other folks are, are doing. And I think lastly, for me, the thing that actually I'm not doing uh, that is helping is I'm not traveling. Um, mm. I've effectively been on a book tour for the last four years. Um, and it has been corrosive and exhausting and mentally fatiguing. And I'm that sounds like a plot to a horror novel. It, it, like yes, it has felt like book. that. <laughs> the so, tour. Groundhog Day, too. I know. I'm very happy to actually be home um, and to, to be able to connect and see my family every day. I mean, I, I could stand a little childcare you know, here and there, but that's not happening. I don't, I don't even have kids and I could stand some. I know, <laughs> I know. but it, this is so much better than mm. the airport twice a week for like months on end. So mm. I'm glad you're getting that time with your family. I am too. I am too. Thank you so much for chopping it up with us and for your generosity and your thoughts. And folks, we'll be back on the line with another person reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Rosie. Daniel. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous uh -huh. earlier, but mm -hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. And I'm staring directly <laughs> into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like a taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Does that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo-splain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Ooh. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm -hmm. It has no exclusives, mm -hmm. no premium content, All right. no paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm -hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? Sounds like the Overcast app. Beep, 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 beep. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the app store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully noncommittal. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye.